They told me I use my mouth good. So I started a podcast. That's right. I am now on the, I guess, official first chapter of Jordan B. Peterson's book, The Twelve Rules to Life. So I wanted to start with the overture for reasons I explained in that podcast, but now I am moving on to chapter one in my critical examination of this self-help bestseller. So as this is the one, um, you know, I, I can't disagree with the rule here at all. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. This is rule one of Jordan B. Peterson's 12 rules for life. So we're going to be looking at what I agree and disagree with in this chapter. And if there are other ways you can get the same advice without a lot of extra bullshit. So, first off, just looking at the rule as it exists, stand up straight with your shoulders back. Yes. Okay, what's, what, what's to disagree with there? It's a confident posture. It's something that uh, makes you feel good when you're doing it. And it communicates to other people that you have self-esteem. So, solid advice. I think this chapter, though, is uh, goes a little bit astray of the main point and adds in a lot of extra things, a lot of things uh, hmm, that I just can't get on board with. And so this is where we find out about the infamous lobsters. What is the deal with the lobster thing and Jordan Peterson? Well, this is his argument. So he starts off this chapter immediately with the lobsters. Um, so we immediately understand kind of where he's coming from. And he makes the case, uh, his first point is about lobsters and their territory. 
And he says they're somewhat uh, analogous to humans in their behaviors and certain uh, traits that they have, uh, certain ways that they respond to um, stimuli or even certain drugs. So let's kind of look into some of the claims made about lobsters. His first point is about lobsters and territory. And uh, it's basically, like, similar to other animals, he mentions birds as well. Uh, when certain territory is desired, and when springtime kind of comes around, there are somewhat ferocious territorial disputes for the best land. Okay, I mean, yeah, humans do that too. We've always done that. But let's kind of... Let's kind of look at this a little bit further. Um, some uh, Something that he kind of points out is how the lobster's brain has serotonin in it, for example. Uh, he says that even Prozac works to make lobsters more cheery than, or more cheery than uh, maybe their default state because it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So what that basically does is it sorts out, I guess, and for lack of a better word, your serotonin levels so that they are at a healthier level, uh, you know, in, in the situation where you're depressed or uh, something like that. Um, now, I kind of want to examine that claim because he's using it to back up that, uh, you know, it, it can be that they are somewhat similar with their territories and the, the ways they're driven to kind of conquer these territories. And I want to point to an article that I came across when looking at the serotonin and lobster thing, and it's an article from a website called The Conversation. And it's theconversation.com, and it is, Psychologist Jordan Peterson says lobsters help to explain why human hierarchies exist, but do they? And so serotonin isn't just responsible for happiness. It's responsible for a lot of other functions, too. Um, and those things are, can, you know, can function slightly differently between humans and other animals. So... Well, this article kind of breaks that down. I'll share it in the show notes. Um, what they kind of found out is the way serotonin is present in crustaceans is that it is highly connected to dominance and aggressive social behavior. When lobsters are given injections of serotonin, they tend to adopt aggressive postures similar to ones displayed by dominant animals when they approach subordinates. Now... This isn't the case with humans, so even though humans do tend to fight over territory, that's one of kind of the oldest dominance things that exists, is humans fighting over territory, um, serotonin doesn't necessarily affect humans in the same way as it does crustaceans. Uh, in fact, it seems to affect them in the opposite way. Uh, so... It's not the best analogy ever. He kind of goes into more details with the lobster thing. Uh, and he really, 
I mean, it is interesting, I guess. I, I now know more about lobsters than I ever really wanted to know. Um, one of the points he makes is that if a lobster ends up losing to another lobster, that decrease that that uh, decrease in brain chemicals after the loss and the kind of, I guess, sadness or everything that's associated with loss after that changes the personality of the lobster to where they are less likely to fight uh, if they encounter another battle for dominance. Again, very interesting. I guess that can apply to some humans. Uh, for others, it applies differently um, because we're not lobsters. Now, I get to his broader point, you know, if you go through so many defeats and you don't have a whole lot of victories, it is very difficult to continue kind of going on. It's very difficult uh, to kind of get that forward momentum needed to get the fight kind of back in you. So I get that point. I don't necessarily disagree with that either. And if we look at the way that serotonin levels in the brain correlate with aggression, it's the exact opposite between humans and lobsters. Um, while lower levels, this is from the article, while lower levels of serotonin are associated with decreased levels of aggression in vertebrates like the lobster, the opposite is true in humans. And this happens because low levels of serotonin in the brain make communication between the amygdala and frontal lobes weaker, making it more difficult to control emotional responses to anger. So, yeah, it, you know, not the best comparison ever. Uh, Prozac may not work uh, exactly the same. It, it might work similar on a uh, neurotransmitter level. It, it seems to affect the same nerve terminals between humans and lobsters. Um, but I guess it is arguable. I mean, happier. I don't know how you measure happiness in a lobster. And in the book, he does say that Prozac makes lobsters cheerier. <laughs> Another thing is, regardless of the way that chemicals are affecting our brains, our brains can change themselves. They're not completely in this fixed state. You can be beaten down a lot over time. You can lose a lot in life and be very discouraged. But unlike the lobster, where if he uh, is defeated and can be observed to not challenge other dominant lobsters as much, yeah, usually even at all, um, in other conflicts or, you know, near conflicts for territory, we don't really see that behavior in humans. Humans are extremely anti-fragile. We're extremely adaptable. Uh, we can go through periods where we're beaten down and we can't really, and we don't really feel like we can get back up for a while. But that fight is certainly possible to regain. Uh, we do have a lot of different brain chemicals that can be adjusted, whether it's through medicine or through things like exercise or other types of even sensory experiences. We can alter the level of brain chemicals uh, in a lot of different ways. And uh, human brains are so complex. I mean, it's not just serotonin we're talking about here. We're looking at tons of different neurotransmitters that function, uh, you know, at different levels in different people. Um, and, you know, you're not always going to be a defeated lobster if you lose a few times in your life. If you do have a rough start, say you have uh, a violent childhood or something like that, then you might show similar 
signs of like a increased fight or flight syndrome uh, are heightened. And in the book, uh, Jordan Peterson calls it a heightened startle reflex. And uh, yeah, you could see that. He does make the point that you can see that in lobsters and the defeated lobster. You also see some evidence of that in people who have experienced a lot of violence or uh, a lot of, I guess, losing, so to speak. But Again, human brains are highly adaptable. So I don't know that we can claim that even though human brains that have undergone a lot of stress have been changed and altered in a lot of ways, that they are somehow in a fixed state or somehow unmalleable. And actually, research shows that there are a lot of really good therapies that can be used to uh, fix these, these imbalances and inspire confidence in people who are lacking confidence. There's a lot of, as a clinical psychologist, I think he would know this, uh, you know, especially with certain types of therapy. I mentioned EMDR in another podcast of mine, and uh, that seems to have a lot of proof behind it as far as being able to give people confidence over controlling their emotions and their reactions to past traumatic experiences. So he's going into this lobster point, um... And then he brings in uh, what's called the Matthew Principle, uh, which is, he says, derived from what might be the harshest statement ever attributed to Christ, uh, which is, to those who have everything, more will be given. From those who have nothing, everything will be taken. So it's not exactly the most optimistic principle ever. It does seem to ring somewhat true, I guess, on an intuitive level. If you've gone through a lot of shit in your life, it does seem to be a useful principle to point to when shit has really hit the fan. Now, he then says this really odd statement. I have it highlighted. He's, it's just a single sentence. He says, you truly know you are the son of God when your dicta apply even to crustaceans. And this is, of course, referring to when the lobsters fight it is a winner take all situation where the losers are uh punished pretty severely you know sometimes they lose out on mating opportunities they certainly lose out on territory things like that i don't know that religion or the matthew principle has anything to do with any of this so this is a weird parallel that he that feels forced to me and kind of an excuse to throw a uh, you know, biblical thing in there, uh, which he does a lot. By the way, this is my major criticism is he'll he'll make a point and then he'll like, w like try to wedge a biblical dicta into it. And I find it to be a little ham fisted and uh, I guess like unnecessary. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I understand he does have a background in studying the Bible and stuff. So, I mean, his audience might be more used to that. So, whatever. So, he goes on to make the case that this whole lobster dominance hierarchy that results from all of the fighting is exceedingly stable. Now, 
he's not just talking about lobsters here. This is the thing. He goes into extreme detail about lobsters, but his whole point is to continue drawing parallels to humans. So what he is also saying here is that lobster dominance hierarchies are stable, as are the hierarchies that result from human violence and human interaction. Now, I think this should give any skeptical person pause because what he's, the case he's basically making in this first chapter with the lobster dominance hierarchies, which doesn't even necessarily, I don't really see it, that it correlates super well with the, the broader point of confidence. Um, he's talking, he's doing all this talk about lobsters to, make the point that the way things are, that the unfair hierarchies that exist for humans are actually fair and they're actually okay and they're actually stable and beneficial to us. Once again, reality seems to be in conflict with Jordan B. Peterson's perception of it because as a lot of listeners to this podcast know who are informed about hierarchies know the damage and destruction that they cause to people. Whether you're looking at it from a nuclear family level where children have no rights and the rights of mothers are not necessarily the same as the rights of fathers, it's kind of easily observable that dominance hierarchies exist in human civilization too. So, you know, the lobster analogy isn't completely wrong, but to say that they're stable, I don't think is true. You have people who are constantly persecuted by others. So I highlighted the part about how the resultant hierarchy is exceedingly stable, and I have some notes on it. And to me, it seems like a chicken and egg thing. Because all we've known is this hierarchy that comes from violently enforced gender norms and heteronormative culture and uh, basically all of the norms that we live under have at some point in history been enforced violently and still are enforced violently in a lot of areas. Whether we think of women as property, whether they're private property or public property, the way we treat children in regards to their rights, the ways that uh, certain people are able to have no accountability for their actions um, and not receive proportionate punishment for them or not be, expect not be expected to have any kind of restitution for victims, things like this. All of these are a result of destructive dominance hierarchies. And it's all we've ever known. We, we've only started to see the damage that these hierarchies have caused and started to dismantle some of them. And that's why we're seeing a huge reactionary backlash right now of people from the far right saying, oh my God, like our rights are being taken away when really other people's rights are, other people are just gaining the same level of rights that, uh, you know, white appearing men have always been able to access in this country. It's not a matter of rights being taken away. It's that other people are being lifted up through economic and social changes over the last several decades that are positive, that are really good. And 
this idea that the existence of something is proof that it's good and it's proof of stability, again, is just simply not true. I mean, we have, for example, if you take the United States as it exists as a country, it's been around for a couple hundred years now. It exists, but that it exists does not mean it is necessarily stable. It doesn't mean that it was created through nonviolent ways. It was stolen. This whole landmass that people call the United States was stolen from other people. It's And resources were hoarded by small percentages of people. And the result is kind of what we have now. We've gone through different economic changes, and we're slowly seeing a lot of things shift in very positive directions. We are seeing technological advancements that are leveling the playing field by distributing information that can shift power dynamics. We're seeing all this happen in real time. And so the idea that the resulting hierarchy that comes from dominating others through war and literal violence is good, it's, it's so clearly not. Like, the, the idea that that is the end-all, be-all is not good enough anymore. People are able to see far into the future. We're able to see the progress that's happened. And that's changing. The world is changing. We're no longer beholden to the same dominance hierarchies that have already existed. And again, I want to go back to his, and he's going to refer to this more, the whole idea of the feminine dragon of chaos and the masculine like dude of order <laughs> um once again like the resultant hierarchy was only achieved through violence it was achieved through the violence of people of all genders but specifically men it has been men who have been the most violent enforcers of the dominance hierarchy that exists uh, whether it's been through war, whether it's been through child abuse or spousal abuse or, you know, a anything like that, tons of physical violence created the hierarchies we have now. And that doesn't mean that they're good. And, it, and we can do better. Again, this is not something we have to accept. I, in fact, I completely reject his whole premise when it comes, first of all, the lobster analogy isn't good. Secondly, the hierarchy that exists now isn't good. It's mostly destructive to people who aren't at the top of it. And those people who were at the top of it did not fight fair like the lobsters. They didn't, they didn't necessarily use their, their wits and, and strength to get where they got. Again, why the analogy is bad, if this was just about like the strongest human fighting all of the other weakest humans, it would be one thing, but you can't really say that like this complex social structure built on, you know, a millennia, millennia of violence and interlacing political systems and hierarchies of family oligarchies and all of that other shit uh, is even comparable. It's so much more complex. And again, it's a bad analogy, and I hate it. And I hate it because I think it contributes to social laziness. 
I think it contributes to the idea that, well, things are the best they've always been, so we can just sit back and stop trying. And, well, you people, you women really shouldn't be complaining because you have it better than ever before. You know, like, it, it it's this kind of, like, oh, well, you know, if it was good enough for my grandparents, it's good enough for me kind of mentality that just encourages stagnation. So, moving on, it gets back into gender stuff, which is not Peterson's strongest point ever. And again, he starts talking about lady lobsters and how during mating season, what do the lady lobsters do? The lady lobsters all are trying to mate with the most dominant male lobster. And then he goes on to try to make this analogous to humans again by uh, saying that, oh, well, the, you know, the female lobsters like to watch the male lobsters fight and, you know, this kind, there's this kind of force involved. And he says, this is a lobster equivalent to Fifty Shades of Grey, the fastest selling paperback of all time. And he's saying that... Uh, these animals are into fighting, then they're going to be into mating, and and he goes to say, this is a pattern of behavior continually represented in the sexually explicit literary fantasies that are as popular among women as provocative images of naked women are among men. Okay, again, what are the causes to this? It isn't simply an evolutionary psychology foundation right it's so much more than that a lot of the sexual imagery that's out there a lot of the reason why people are drawn to certain sexual imagery is because we still live in a very sexually repressed world Uh, the social norms and cultural norms that govern at least this country in the u.s while fairly progressive are not super progressive they're still a bit puritanical about sex stuff so edgy kind of sex stuff is repressed and therefore a lot of people tend to seek it out there are very uh common social explanations for human behavior when it comes to uh desiring i don't know like 50 shades of gray type stuff explicit literary fantasies interests and stuff like that um I think there's just as much social basis for that as there could be maybe some biological basis. I don't know if there's a biological basis for women wanting to be dominated. Again, it's it's another kind of chicken and egg thing. It's like this comes from society. This comes from a culture that values certain things, and you cannot escape that kind of cultural conditioning. So, and that's kind of my take on it. I think it's a bit of there are many influences to this behavior i'm not saying it's all social influences because it's not maybe there's some biological basis what he is saying though and i want to make this really clear he is saying that it was mostly a biological basis he is and does several times in the book try to lump all genders together and all women together and that you know all he he gets into this weird thing about you know women want to be dominated more um again the causes of that are complex it's more than just oh well you know we're kind of like lobsters 
and we're just kind of evolutionarily predisposed to this. Again, there's a lot of factors. And then, later on in the chapter, he goes right back to the yin and yang dragon and chaos analogy. So he's talking about the yin and yang symbols of the Taoists, which I do recommend everyone reading the Tao Te Ching. If you, I would read it before reading Peterson's book, and I think you, uh, <laughs> it's interesting, I just have to say it's interesting he uses the Tao Te Ching because it's a book I've read several times, and the Tao Te Ching doesn't necessarily back up this highly structured view of how to win at life. <laughs> in fact, it's quite the opposite. So he goes on to talk about the Taoist symbol and uh, how it's represented by two serpents, and the black serpent is chaos and it has a white dot in its head. The white serpent order has a black dot in its head, and he says this is because chaos and order are interchangeable, as well as eternally juxtaposed. There is nothing so certain that it cannot vary. Even the sun itself has cycles of instability. So this is kind of interesting because he's harping on this analogy for much of the beginning part of the book, and yet he just said chaos and order are interchangeable. So, if they are interchangeable, then again, why would you not just reverse the analogy for the purpose of creating a clearer point about chaos and order, if you're into that? Again, if these are just symbols, it's one thing, it's very easy to weasel out of criticism when you're saying that, but he also makes the claim that like, oh, these are just so evident and so self-evident, it's just inherently true. So, he, I don't know, he almost tries to be somewhat Taoist even in that. It's like, oh, there's no, there's nothing so certain that it cannot vary. Yes, that's a very Taoist principle. But the whole purpose of the book is to get rid of uncertainty and be certain with these 12 rules that you can have the antidote to chaos, which by this section you would say is interchangeable with order. So therefore, none of it really makes sense. <laughs> he does this a lot, by the way. He'll say something and then contradict himself in the same paragraph, but then continue to carry on with the analogy that he made before he contradicted himself, which means that there's some other agenda involved, and we're going to try to discover that agenda. So I just wanted to point that out because I thought it was just a very bizarre kind of thing. And he kind of goes on, he's talking about, he, he gets into some real flowery language in this. He, he definitely tries to sound uh, almost a little bit new agey for a while, and here's a section of that. Uh, he goes, leaves change more quickly than trees and trees more quickly than forests. Weather changes faster than climate. If it wasn't this way, then the conservation of evolution would not work, as the basic morphology of arms and legs would have to change as fast as the length of arm bones and the function of fingers. 
it's chaos within order within chaos within higher order. The order that is most real is the order that is most unchanging, and that is not necessarily the order that is most easily seen. The leaf, when perceived, might blind the observer to the tree. The tree can blind him to the forest, and some things that are most real, such as the ever-present dominance hierarchy, cannot be seen at all. So that was his approach at being Lao Tzu, I'm guessing. Only Lao Tzu would say something. They would say something like, <laughs> the order that can be perceived is not the order or something like that. Or the order, actually, the Tao would say something like, the order that can be ordered and free from chaos is not the true order or something. Um, but he says this weird thing. <laughs> Some things that are most real, such as the ever-present dominance hierarchy, cannot be seen at all. What? It's very obvious that there is a dominance hierarchy. There, there's a, there are dominance hierarchies in almost everything we do. It, it's there again. I'm not equating something that exists with something that's good or beneficial, like he tends to do. But it's not. It's not a mystery. It's not something that like we can't observe. There are rich people and poor people. There's classism. There's racism. There's, there's sexism. There are all these things that rank people based on income, marital status, perceived gender, race. Uh, you know, whatever, religious beliefs. Like, maybe it's not seen, this is, that's the part I highlighted, and this is the note I have, maybe it's not seen if you benefit from the imposed patriarchy that exists. But if you don't benefit from that, then it's very obvious. It's so obvious. And people are aware of it, even if they don't call it such. So... Don't, you know, I, I hate it when he presents this like, oh, this is truth that's, you know, this is common sense that's not so common. That's kind of what he's doing with this. And it's like, no, we know the dominance hierarchy exists. <laughs> like, if you've been at the fucking shit end of that dominance hierarchy, you're definitely fucking sure it exists. So yes, again, things exist. The fact that they exist doesn't make them good necessarily he goes on to say later there is a little more natural than culture hmm i don't know i definitely beg to differ with that and dominance hierarchies are older than trees and what he's saying again he's trying to make the point that the invisible dominance hierarchy that you can't see that exists everywhere is good because it's old and this is literally the naturalistic fallacy. <laughs> so that I don't think I'm bastardizing his point at all. He's saying, okay, first of all, we can see dominance hierarchies, so it's not that like they're so mysterious we can't see them and we're just total slaves to them. Anyone who's ever had a boss can fucking understand what a dominance hierarchy. Anyone who's had parents can understand what a dominance hierarchy is. And culture is something that is constantly changing. To say that there is little more natural than culture is completely not true. Culture is a fabrication of social norms that a collective group of people arbitrarily agree on and violently enforce. 
and they tend to exclude other people who don't practice the same cultures or they do things like force compliance to it in other ways. I don't know that any culture is truly natural. I don't think we know what the natural state of humanity is because we don't live in a natural environment anymore. We live in an extremely artificial environment. So the resultant culture coming out of the environment is never going to be natural. And again, it's changed so much. So the culture that emerged out of the environment that existed in, for example, you know, prehistoric times or something like that, or, you know, going way, way back, like, was entirely different than, you know, what it is now. We're, we're still maybe functioning with some of the brain same brain neurotransmitters and responses to things, but our brains have had to change to adapt to a changing environment. So as our brains change, our culture is changing, as people move across the world, as they expand, their culture changes, as they interact with other cultures, their culture changes. There is no such thing as a natural culture. Culture is a human construct. It's a social construct. It's, enti it's entirely constructed from socialization and socializing with other human beings. So he's just wrong. It's just a wrong point. So let's see. Uh, he makes a few more points. He's talking more about serotonin. So again, I kind of already went over that point. Serotonin actually affects lobsters and humans in the opposite ways. But while he's making these points about decreased levels of serotonin, and clearly they're going to have an effect on mood and all of these other human processes, it completely ignores the idea of antifragility, which is something that we know human beings, especially human brains, are very good at, which is like being broken and then being prepared in a stronger way. It's something our brains can do. It's something our muscles can do. It's something that is explored in a lot of other books and articles. I'll probably find some to link to in the show notes. But he has this idea, again, comparing us with the lobsters of this fixed idea of serotonin levels and these fixed ideas of dominance hierarchies that exist, and they're good because they exist. Um, and it ignores the changing dynamics of everything, that the world is constantly changing and it's chaotically changing. And we react to chaos in our environments with degrees of anti-fragility in a lot of cases. Again, this stuff is very changeable. It's not constant. It's not something that we're stuck with. And this is actually really good news, I think. Um, I don't think... I mean, maybe, so, like, if you didn't know the dominance hierarchies existed, this might be good information to have to make you aware of something um, that's a, you know, very certain phenomenon. But again, we don't have to accept that premise. Like, we don't have to accept that just because things are a certain way that they're necessarily the way they're supposed to be. Sometimes they're just the way they ended up being. And we can always change and evolve from that. Peterson does go on to 
make this point somewhat, he goes on to say we should be rising up. This is where the stand up straight part comes in. We need to be rising up against these you know, various social things holding us down, which is kind of weird because he doesn't say it's the dominance hierarchy that's extremely evident that is holding people down, but other things, um, you know, other types of resentments, uh, you know, maybe bureaucracies generating unnecessary rules and procedures. Yes, that's a problem. That would also be the kind of violently imposed dominance hierarchy all of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, don't slump around, stand up, you know, fake it till you make it, I guess. Uh, I just don't know why you couldn't make that point without, like, challenging the dominance hierarchy, because he does go on to say later that, you know, you, you step forward to take your place in the dominance hierarchy and occupy your territory, manifesting your willingness to disband, manifesting your willingness to defend, expand, and transform it. Um, again, I guess he's wanting you to fight to get further up into the dominance hierarchy, but what if the problem is that the dominance hierarchy is the problem? I mean, yeah, maybe there's not much that can be done about it, but I would think challenging the system that forces you to participate in it through domination, through not just standing up straight with your shoulders back, but, you know, other aggressive kinds of ways... Maybe that should be one of the goals that you're striving towards. So here is one of the main highlights where he talks, he comes out and says to stand up straight with your shoulders back. He said to stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. It means deciding to voluntarily transform the chaos of potential into the realities of habitable order. It means adopting the burden of self-conscious vulnerability and accepting the end of the unconscious paradise of childhood where finitude and mortality are only dimly comprehended. It means willingly undertaking the sacrifices necessary to generate a productive and meaningful reality. It means acting to please God. In the ancient language. So that's actually a lot more than just stand up straight with your shoulders back. <laughs> You're accepting a whole lot according to his definition. Um, I think, I don't know, I, I don't, again, I don't disagree with all of this. It is very uh, flowery. Um, I especially don't agree with the very ending there, um, acting to please God. Again, he inserts this kind of religious stuff into it, and I don't know. I mean, that's fine. Yeah, people, people can believe in that. I just don't see how it really adds to the larger point. In fact, that addition at the very end there, acting to please God, I don't really see how it kind of lines up with more more practical advice. But, I mean, I guess if you believe in God, it does. So, who am I to say? But yeah, 
he goes on to he's still going on with you know flowery kind of language again he kind of brings religious into it it means shouldering the cross that marks the x to the place where you and being intersect so terribly it means casting dead rigid and too tyrannical order back into the chaos in which it was generated it means withstanding the ensuing uncertainty and establishing in consequence a better more meaningful more productive order Sometimes you can't face chaos and force it into order. Sometimes you just have to go with the chaos. <laughs> so, he's going on more. He says, uh, Walk tall and gaze forthrightly ahead. Dare to be dangerous. Encourage the serotonin to flow plentifully through the neural pathways desperate for its calming influence. Okay, uh, you have to inter encourage the serotonin to flow through chemicals a lot of the times. <laughs> you can't just, like, will it to happen. I mean, maybe, you know, there's a lot in the, you know, fake it till you make it kind of mentality. That's fine. But, yeah, you kind of... There's a lot of steps you need to take there. Um, the dare to be dangerous thing is really interesting. So people love that he says that um because it does sound kind of cool right dare to be dangerous what is dangerous in the world of this stuffy clinical psychologist and professor because wedging in religious philosophy with common sense and based on this premise that, you know, chaos is bad and, you know, we have these dominance hierarchies similar to lobsters and they're good or whatever. I don't know. None of these ideas seem dangerous at all. Taking responsibility for your life is not dangerous. It's responsible. It's good. Like, it's, it's, there's nothing, uh, uncertain about it like daring to be dangerous in real life is facing the chaos is sitting in it and with it and knowing that you can't force it into a nice neat little order so i hate that quote there again he's not saying anything dangerous he's not actually he doesn't want you to be dangerous He's basically in some like in a lot of places he basically means like sacrificing your desires to please god you know, no, that's not dangerous. That's not original. He's saying, speak your mind, unless, you know, it's about gender or sexuality or the fluidity of hierarchies. Speak your mind, but only in the ways that he wants you to. Again, nothing dangerous here. Ah, oh, God, this is exhausting. He adds, again, he just adds so many words in this chapter that detract even from his point and are completely unnecessary. There's way more information about lobsters in here than you ever really need to know, and it doesn't even really support his analogy well. And now we're going to get to why this is probably such a bestseller, because despite being boring through most of the chapter, towards the end it does start to get really good, and it starts to feel like a good motivational speech. Oh, dare to be dangerous, stand up straight with your shoulders back. And then he starts kind of going off the deep end a little bit, because yes, standing up straight with your shoulders back will inspire confidence and help your self-esteem and make you look more respectable to others. And, you know, it does have its improvements, but he gets like really real woo-woo metaphysical with this stuff. 
And okay, I get it. It's motivational. You know? He starts saying, thus strengthened and emboldened, you may choose to embrace being, with a capital B, and work for its furtherance and improvement. Thus strengthened, you may be able to stand, even during the illness of a loved one, even during the death of a parent, and allow others to find strength alongside you when they would otherwise be overwhelmed with despair. Thus emboldened, you will embark on the voyage of your life. Let your light shine, so to speak, on the heavenly hill, and pursue your rightful destiny. Which I guess would be a place in the rigid dominance hierarchy that you cannot escape, even by standing up straight with your shoulders back. Ah, so that's my take on the first chapter. And as I've claimed before, there is actually I claimed it before on social media this was a kind of social media I, I actually was watching Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and realized wow these guys are doing like the wholesome version of 12 Steps for Life and I wonder I wonder if there's an episode for each chapter this is a bit of a hypothesis I'm testing out with this series of podcasts and it turns out for this chapter there is an analogous Queer Eye episode that you should watch instead. And my recommendation for the Queer Eye episode is Season 1, Episode 6. It's called The Renaissance of Remington. And it's a heartwarming story of a 27-year-old man named Remington. He goes by Remy. He lives in his grandmother's house. And he wants to be the man of the house. He wants to host big meals for his family like they used to do. His father passed away suddenly, and so he wants to honor his father's life, basically, and his memory. He wants the confidence of an entrepreneur. So Queer Eye gives him this awesome new direction in life. They redo his wardrobe. They redo his house. They inspire confidence in him because he always looked up to his father, who was a very confident man. And at the very end of the episode, they say verbatim, because they, they have these little tips at the very end, they literally say this, stand up straight with your shoulders straight and make eye contact to exude confidence. So they keep it very simple. Stand up with your stand up straight with your shoulders back. Same episode as Jordan B. Peterson takes about what, like I think every episode is maybe thirty minutes or so. Very wholesome and has none of the weird attempts to sound super deep and also do a weird counterproductive thing where it basically tells you that. By standing up straight with your shoulders back, you can conquer anything, but not the dominance hierarchy that he claims you're stuck in at the very beginning of the chapter. The Queer Eye guys don't even go to the dominance hierarchy thing. So I highly recommend that episode. I have a few notes for some upcoming episodes, too. Um... It was really heartwarming. This guy, Remington, in this episode, like, he, you can just tell he's real beaten down. He's been in a funk since his father passed away, and he's, you know, living in his family's house with a roommate, and they completely redo it, and you can just tell by the end of it, he is a different man. And change, transformation into a more confident person with higher self-esteem 
can happen with just a shift in perspective and a shift in your environment and even your wardrobe and learning, you know, a little bit of grooming, you know, learning how to cook. They go through this whole, they teach him a bunch of recipes. I mean, they really make him into, you know, such a good example of a responsible adult who's confident and, you know, doesn't need any kind of dumb dominance hierarchies to tell him what his place is. So I highly recommend that. And I'm going to, I'm getting close to wrapping up this episode. I'm wanting to make them all around an hour. And I just want to say, um, the past couple of weeks have been really interesting for me. Last week, it was my birthday. And I just want to thank my patrons who contributed on my Amazon wish list. I sent it out on my birthday. I wasn't really expecting much, but I did get a couple goodies, including a new microphone and microphone stand that I will be testing out soon. I actually have to get a little bit more equipment to be able to use it. I have to get access to some XLR cables that uh, I have in another place, and I have to get a new mixer because, unfortunately, my last mixer... Uh, had to be, it was basically given away. It's a whole long story, but I'm just very, very thankful to my chosen family and the patrons who gave me some really nice surprise birthday presents. And if you all remember, I did a podcast around this time last year. Uh, it's been a year since, you know, the passing of my brother, and that has been really difficult. And it's what's caused me to dive into a lot of the self-help stuff, which I do find really fascinating. And I think you can find it in so many places. And the reason I'm doing this series is to direct people to just more wholesome sources for ways to improve their lives. Because it's And it's fine, again, if this book, The 12 Rules for Life, does that for you. That's awesome. You know, I... I'm not going to argue with that at all, but if you can find the same information without any of the misogynistic bullshit and stuff, and we're going to get into it, he gets, you didn't really see it much in this chapter, but we'll get into some of the sexist stuff that he does. Um, but look, watch Queer Eye, for real. It's teaching you the same kinds of lessons and in a much more wholesome way with less judgment and less defeat. I think. So I'll link to the article I was talking about, breaking down the lobsters and serotonin. And thanks so much for your patience while I get this series out. I should be having another episode exploring chapter two next. So while this chapter was stand up straight with your shoulders back, the next chapter we'll be covering is rule two. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Ooh, I like the sound of that. Let's see how much I really like it in the next episode. Thanks for listening. As always, you can send love mail to iconosass at gmail.com. You can follow me on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And yeah, I'm all over the place. Uh, thanks to a couple of new patrons that I just recently got. And uh, yeah, you can expect more of this pretty soon. So thanks so much for listening. I will talk to you next time.